0: If you go abroad on holiday and I'm going to use France as an example your British money won't be of much use to you you have to change it into the local currency and that being euros in France and euro notes and coins don't look all that different from pounds and pence but they aren't the same and that's why you have to convert your money if you want to use it when you're away and in a similar way there are two expressions that you sometimes hear used in reference to Christians and Christianity. One is convert or conversion, and the other is born again. And both convey the idea that when you become a Christian, there is a change in you. You do not become a Christian with no discernible difference. Just as euro currency is different from pounds, your Christian self is different from your previous non-Christian self. That difference is more likely to be in your demeanor or in your personality rather than in your, your obvious appearance. Although it is true that an internal change can, in your attitude can be reflected externally. Maybe you smile more. Maybe you frown less. Maybe you walk with a spring in your step. In any case, people who know you should expect to see some kind of a difference. And people who don't know you might just think that you're a nice person to be around. And this conversion, this rebirth, or putting on a new life, is what Paul wrote about in today's reading from Ephesians. And Paul uses two big themes that I would particularly like us to consider. The first is emptiness and petrification of the heart allowing sin to take over. And Paul follows that by banishing the things that lead to sin, so it's almost a case of prevention is better than cure. And Paul writes here like the consummate salesman who explains what the problem is, offers a vision of something better, then explains how to get there. What Paul doesn't do is ask for money, because what he does is tell the the readers what is wrong. How good things could be and how to make that change. And Paul really does lay into the Gentiles, by which he means heathens. And there are different Bible translations. And notice the one that Ali used is different from the ones that are in the, in the church Bibles. And the one I looked at had a rather nice adjective which said that their minds are empty. Not literally Empty but empty in the sense that there's nothing of God in them. All they can think about are the trivial things of the world. And worse than that, they think of things that drive their most vile, their most base desires. It is utter selfishness. This leads to hardening of the heart, or as that same translation has it, petrification it turns their hearts to stone. Last night was Burns' night, and Robert Burns put it this way in his epistle to a young friend. I waive the quantum of the sin, the hazard of concealing, but, oh, it hardens all within and petrifies the feeling. And it's a horrible thought. And Paul, in his letter, which Burns would have known, paints an equally ugly picture. For it doesn't happen suddenly, it's a gradual conscious process. People start off with a small mistake and it grows and it grows until it takes them over and then it becomes almost impossible to go back. And to give an example, I don't imagine anyone sets out intending to become an alcoholic They just have a wee drink to be sociable. Then they have a big drink and then they have two big drinks and then they have two big drinks every day and then they find they can't get through a day without a drink and that's how it is with sin. No one sets out to be an inveterate sinner but like the alcoholic with drink the more you sin the deeper in you get and the harder it becomes to go back. Ultimately, says Paul, you will sin without shame or regret. Just as the alcoholic will do whatever it takes to get his next drink, so the sinner will sin without care and without shame. It becomes a way of life, so you don't even realize what you're doing. The sin is pernicious, it sneaks up on you unaware. A moment of doubt, a second of weakness, and you are caught. And Satan is an expert at it. In Genesis chapter 2, it's right after the creation, God tells Adam he may not eat of the, the fruit of the tree that gives knowledge of good and evil. And almost immediately in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan appears. But he doesn't tell Adam to eat the forbidden fruit. Oh, no, no. He's much more cunning than that. Instead, he asks Eve a question. Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, that's subtle. He plants a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. He gets her to think about eating the fruit he doesn't tell her to do it. He just gets her thinking about it. And notice it was Adam and not Eve that God had told not to eat the fruit. So Eve's doubt has increased. That's an early warning of how Satan operates, and he's had thousands of years of practice since then. And still in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve did, of course, eat the forbidden fruit. They were punished by being put out of the garden where they used to walk with God. And that is the real tragedy of sin. It cuts us off from God, alienation from God. We no longer reflect God's likeness. And when we're alienated, when we're cut off from God... We are much more vulnerable to Satan's next approach. And we are all vulnerable. None of us is immune. And to give a trivial example of how this works, suppose you're on a diet, and this is January. A few people are. So you go to the shops, and in the baker's window is a beautiful chocolate cream eclair. It's a real masterpiece of the baker's art. It's a Paul Hollywood handshake moment. (laughs) You could almost hear it crying out, eat me, please eat me. And you think, no, I mustn't. I don't need it. I'm on a diet. And greed is one of the deadly sins. Now, of course, the cake can't actually speak. It doesn't use words. But then you see the sign underneath Today only, 20% off. That is Satan being subtle. And then you think, that's a bargain. Just one won't hurt much. But if Satan gets you that one time, if he gets you to taste how good that cake is, what are the chances that tomorrow you might find some excuse to go to the shops again? And again the day after? And before you know it, the diet's off and the pounds are back on. The solution, as Paul says in verse 22, is to get rid of the sinful desire. If you can't walk past the baker's shop, cross the road before you get there. If you do happen to look in the window, don't stand there saying, I mustn't. Instead, walk away and look at the next shop. Or go and read the bus timetable. Go and count the red cars going past on the road. Anything. Just to change the subject. There's nothing wrong with being tempted. Jesus was tempted. What's wrong is giving in. And some of you might remember the old hymn, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Don't argue with Satan because you will lose. Walk away instead. Jesus was able to argue with Satan and win, but Jesus was special. We do better if we turn our backs and walk away. And this is what Paul is getting at when he says we must put off our old selves and be made new. We need to walk away from temptation. We need to walk away from Satan's subtle seductions and entrust ourselves to God. The promise that follows is that we will be recreated in God's likeness, shining like a life that is upright and holy. Now, what an incentive. And having promoted that vision of goodness, Paul goes on to describe some of the things that we need to get rid of from our lives. Bitterness, hatred, dishonesty, and more. Nothing in the list is likely to surprise anyone. But one that is worth looking at more closely is anger. Paul doesn't condemn anger outright. Rather, he warns us not to allow our anger to lead us into sin. And he warns us not to stay angry all day. When we are angry, we can act without thinking. And do things we later regret. And I'm sure many of us have done that in our own lives. I certainly have. And keeping anger stoked up rather than letting it go leads to bitterness. It leads to that hardening of our hearts, the petrification of our feelings. Our hearts turn as cold as stone. Now, there is a place for righteous anger. Jesus was angry when he turned the money changers out of the temple, and this was anger that led to an improvement. Jesus' objection to the money changers was that they were corrupt. They had a monopoly, and they were abusing it by charging unfair prices. They were hurting genuine worshippers who wanted to enter God's temple, and they may even have prevented some good people from going to the temple the money changers were placing an obstacle between the worshippers and God and that is what angered Jesus. He wanted people to enter God's house if their hearts led them to do so and no one was to stand in their way. But anger can be wrongly directed. Before his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul was known as Saul. Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee, a serious student of the Jewish law. And he was angry at the teachings of Jesus as passed on by the early apostles. And this anger caused him to mercilessly pursue Christians to the point of death in order to protect the rectitude of the Jewish law. And Saul genuinely believed he was doing the right thing. He thought his anger at the Christians was righteous anger. But after his conversion, the memory of these persecutions haunted Paul. He even goes so far as to describe himself as the foremost of sinners, that's in his first letter to Timothy. As Saul, he had been angry at what he saw as false teaching. As Paul, he realized that his anger had been far from righteous and had led him into sin. Anger is not sinful in itself, but it has the potential to very easily lead us into sin. And the other danger with anger is that it can consume us. It can become so intense, so focused, that we abandon rational thought and we also lose all feelings of tenderness. We become blind to anything else but the focus of our own selfish anger. It becomes completely self-centered. This is where Satan gets his foot in the door. That's verse 27. And nothing good can come of that. In Tam O'Shanter, Burns famously describes Kate thus, Our sulky, sullen dame, Gathering her brows like gathering storm, nursing her wrath to keep it warm. That is not a pretty picture, but that is what happens when we allow anger to take us over. Kate is deliberately stoking her anger, ready to lash out at her wayward husband when he eventually gets home. However much we might think that Tam deserves it, Kate's anger is not an appealing vision. Hers is the kind of anger that does lead to bitterness, to shouting and insults, and ultimately to hatred. Now, I don't wish in any way to justify Tom's behaviour, which is pretty reprehensible. But I do think I can see why he might have been in no hurry to set off for home. Paul instructs his readers to get rid of these hateful feelings and instead to be kind and loving to one another. He reminds the Ephesians and us that God has forgiven us, and so we should forgive others. And the truth of it is that if we do forgive others, our own feelings of anger and annoyance will subside. Paul's is a message of love, that we must love others just as Christ loved us. But there is something I find curious about today's passage. Because these instructions do not sit easily with Paul's more familiar doctrine of salvation by faith alone, which comes out in his other letters, notably Romans and Galatians. And indeed, last week in church here, Gordon recounted all the times in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul gives credit to God for God's actions. And then in chapter 2... Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. And yet here in chapter 4, he is giving instructions on what we need to do, what actions we need to take. And this contrast between faith and works demands an explanation. In essence, what Paul says in verses 22 to 24 in particular is that we must make a conscious effort to get rid of our old sinful ways and to put on a new nature, a new attitude of mind modelled on God. It is not enough just to try to stop being bad. We must actually want and try to adopt good principles. And we need to keep on doing it. We can't put them off and on and on and off. It's got to be permanent. And for that to happen, it needs to come from our hearts and our minds. It needs to be sincere. For if it is sincere we won't try to go back to our old natures. That's a theme that John Calvin picked up after the Reformation. For Calvin explained that genuine knowledge of God is inseparable from worship and service. We cannot seriously receive God's gift of new life without asking equally seriously what God wants us to do with it. If we are truly converted, we will want to do this, and it will actually be impossible to go back. A few minutes ago, I I deliberately mentioned Paul's conversion from Saul. That Damascene conversion truly did change Paul, and it changed him forever. And yet, it was not in itself a deliberate choice by Paul to change his nature, to put on his new life. What Paul did, though, was to unreservedly accept the new nature, the new life, even the new name that he was given. Paul doesn't want us to sin as he himself sinned, so he tells us to adopt the new life without it being imposed on us as it was on him. What is important here is that Paul readily accepted the new life and didn't try to go back to his old ways. And so it must be with us. But there's another warning. Martin Luther King claimed that we are more likely to sin when we are with other people than when we are alone. He argued that the need to fit in socially is a very powerful influence on our behaviour. We want to be accepted, so we behave in the way that our society expects, and that's both our own personal circle of friends and in the wider society as a whole. You know, we live here today in what is actually a very affluent society, so we're all quite familiar with money, possibly more familiar with money and more interested in money than we should be or that we'd care to admit. Had we lived 2,000 years ago, say, we might have been familiar with the the Romans' so-called games, where gladiators would fight brutally, deliberately aiming to draw blood from their opponents. But whatever our situation, we humans have a tendency to uh, turn down the volume on our own distaste so that we can fit in with society. And so, says Dr. King, we lower ourselves to, become, to behave at the level of the mob. And this is a fine line to draw because we do need to fit in to some extent. If we are to fulfill our calling as Christians to tell other people about Christ, we must mix with other people. But we also need to be careful of where the limits are. We really, to really know these limits, we must be completely renewed. We must get rid of our old self and from the inside out be renewed in heart and mind, so that we can put on God's likeness. It needs to be deep, and it needs to be thorough. If our change is superficial, we can easily be misled and go down a bad route. And that is the opening that Satan is waiting for. In 1930s Germany, the Nazis promoted an ideology of God and Fatherland. The idea that God wanted Germany to be great and somehow approved of the Nazis' plans, appealed to the superficial Christians, the people who were not fully renewed in God's likeness. And sadly, we all know where it led. These people descended into Dr. King's mob brutality when faced with social pressure to conform and so became cut off from God. We need to go deeper we need to try our utmost to really understand God, to be as much one with him as it is possible to be. And we do need to do something to work at it. One way I'm going to suggest to do this is through regular prayer, almost as a constant conversation with God. And it's fine to ask God every morning to bless our day and every evening to thank him for everything that happened. And I do encourage you all to do that. But what about the times in between? Do we ask him to keep us safe on our journey? When we get off the bus, we say, thanks, driver. Do we also thank God for our safe arrival? We thank God for our food. Do we thank him for the sink full of dirty dishes afterwards? what I'm saying is we need to develop a habit of regular contact with God and then we'll get to know him better and we'll become ever closer to a true likeness of him and this is why Paul wants us to be rid to rid ourselves of all our bad feelings and habits our bitterness our hatred our dishonesty our selfishness he wants us to clothe ourselves in love and forgiveness and the good news is If we do that sincerely, we will find it very difficult to go back to our old ways. In other words, if we do take off our old natures and truly put on new ones, we will find it very difficult to take these new natures off again. We will have a new life in God's likeness. And yes... It is something that we do need to work at. But Paul's instructions are there. And I think it's appropriate to close by repeating part of the final verse. Your, love must, your life must be controlled by love, just as Christ loved us. Amen.